This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 5th, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. The Pentagon has already won round one against President Obama, casting level military spending as a spending cut. For his part, Obama does have options for making the military leaner and more responsive to the needs of a modern battlefield. So says Ben Friedman, a research fellow in defense and homeland security studies at the Cato Institute. Obama inherits a 2010 defense budget. Uh, The workup on that began in the spring or summer under Bush, and the the Pentagon's plans, the long-term plans, were to have the FY09 budget be the peak, and then the the defense budget was supposed to level off. According to the budget they uh, created for uh, FY010, that's not going to be the case. They have a $60 billion increase over 09, which is already $520 billion. So we're heading towards $600 billion in the base defense budget, not including the wars, which is another $200 billion or so. And so Obama has handed that budget with that big increase. Uh, and there's also an increase of $450 billion over five years in their new five-year plan. And the question is, does he accept that or not? In other words, does he just say, I don't have time to send this back to the Pentagon and, and uh, put my imprint on it, so I'll just accept it? Or does he say, well, I, I, I you know, have to hold down spending because we're spending so much on the stimulus and on the bailout and everything else? Um, and uh, it looks like he's going he's gonna to keep the budget that he got, at least according to Bill Lynn, who is, who is his nominee to be the deputy secretary of defense, the number two at the Pentagon. They're probably just going to keep it. And I think that uh, basically is, is sort of a cave-in to the bureaucracy. This increase was seen as sort of a fait accompli or an attempt at a fait accompli by the services and the bureaucracy to say, here, look, here's a big uh, increase that we want. You're going to have trouble saying no because of the time. You're not going to have a lot of time to uh, review it. And plus, uh, uh, it's going to look week maybe uh, if you show up and all of a sudden you, you say, no, you can't have your increase. Maybe the Republicans will all of a sudden start yelling at you for uh, cutting the defense budget, though, even though you're really keeping it level. So it was seen as a fait accompli, and it looks like so far he's going to cave into it, which is disappointing. What should he be doing? Well, I think he should send it back. To, he should send that budget with the $60 billion increase back to the Pentagon and say, uh, keep it at last year's level plus inflation. Uh, because he said he was going to review the entire federal budget line by line. We're spending a ton elsewhere. Uh, and the, the Pentagon budget's way too big already. It was way too big last year. We have half the world's military spending. We have five times more military spending than our next biggest rival, China. We got 50 or 60 times more military spending than our ostensible enemies, North Korea, Syria, and Iran combined. Uh, we spend more in research and development on new weapon systems than any other country other than China. So uh, we're, we're, we have more than uh, hegemony. We have uh, military superiority for years to come, and we can sacrifice on that front without too much danger. What about the uh, services themselves? Traditionally, they have received uh, roughly uh, equal proportions of the military budget. I mean, generally speaking, it almost seems like a gentleman's agreement uh, to maintain that level. Yeah. What is, why is that? Since the Kennedy administration, the services have received about the same share of the defense budget. So uh, the, the Army's received a little less, but they, they, uh, they 
and you have to keep in mind that when we say the Navy, we're talking about the Navy and the Marines uh, and then the Air Force. They all receive roughly uh, a little less than a third with the remainder uh, going to defense-wide programs like missile defense. And uh, that is uh, uh, something the services sort of agree on. And if you ask the, you know, the, the Joint Chiefs who are the top of each service, uh, well, why don't you ask for more money? They'll say, well, uh, we think that uh, you know, we have to be uh, lined up with our brothers in arms. And uh, jointness, which is this idea that we all go to war together, uh, says that we ought to cooperate. Um, and my attitude is that jointness, uh, this cooperation, is good for battle. In other words, when you go to war, you want to be uh, uh, arm in arm. Uh, you want you know your air power to be well integrated with your land power and so forth. But it's not good for managing the Pentagon, and it's not good for uh, making decisions about weapon systems. You know, uh, competition in bureaucracy can be useful uh, in provoking innovation and in helping civilians be in charge. And ostensibly, civilians are in charge of the Pentagon. But if you ask people who work there, they have a lot of trouble controlling the services because they're very powerful, entrenched services with friends in Congress. If you look at uh, the Eisenhower administration, uh, before we had this tradition of uh, having equal service shares. What Eisenhower did was he decided that the main task for American defense at the time uh, was to defend Europe from a Soviet land invasion. The fear at the time was that the Soviets had superiority in uh, manpower, in the size of their army, in tanks, uh, and that therefore they could overrun Western Europe. And the United States didn't want to uh, send enough or didn't have enough uh, army at the time to defend Europe, the thought went. So we would defend Europe with air power, with nuclear weapons. And we would, and nuclear weapons at the time were delivered by bombers, and sooner or later, uh, this was the 50s, we were working on missile technology. So the idea is, American, the chief task of American defense is, uh, is uh, uh, nuclear weapons. And at the time, the Air Force was in charge of nuclear weapons. They, were, they uh, ran the bomber programs, and they ran the missile programs. So what he did was he gave 50% of the defense budget to the, to the Air Force, and bear in mind, this was a guy who was an army general before he became president. And he said, the army and the navy, you guys can fight over the rest. And, you know, you had all kinds of unhappiness in those two other services. Uh, but I think it had some beneficial results. Uh, number one, the navy uh, trying to be relevant, fighting for relevance, um, developed submarine-launched ballistic missiles. They said to themselves, we have to get into the uh, nuclear weapons game to be relevant, to get our budget share. So what do we do? Well, we can put missiles on submarines, which we already have. And that's what they did. And that's why uh, we developed submarine launch ballistic missiles, which are the most survivable part of our uh, nuclear weapons arsenal. They're very hard to find. And that was a great military innovation. Uh, today, we have a military strategy, one that I don't really agree with, but it sort of is our strategy nonetheless, that is uh, manpower intensive. We say defeating terrorism requires that we occupy states and fix up their government so that they don't become chaotic and allow terrorist havens. Now, I don't agree with that logic. However, that is our strategy. So if we're going to have a uh, that strategy, it's manpower intensive, in my opinion. It, it relies most of all on the army. The Navy is not really involved. So if this is our strategy, I say let's give half the defense budget, not 30 percent, but 50 percent to the Army. Let the Air Force and the Navy fight over the rest and uh, tell the Air Force and the Navy that, you know, find ways to be relevant or articulate to us a different defense strategy. Come up with your own idea of how we ought to defend themselves. And in that situation, maybe you'd have the Navy saying, look, as I do, this strategy is dumb. We can't fix up failed states. This is not consistent with American values and traditions to uh, be occupying and fixing other states. Let's be an offshore balancer. Let's rely on ships. The Navy today doesn't have to articulate that strategy because they have this uh, 
bargain essentially with the army and the air force where they're they get uh their money regardless so i think competition can be valuable and it would help the people running the pentagon uh to to uh, be in charge you, you have an ally in the service that you pick if you uh pick one don't you end up if you if you are calling upon these branches of the service to be innovative and finding ways to be relevant having them make sort of ridiculous claims about areas that they claim as their domain, such as the Air Force claiming to uh, be the lord of cyberspace? Well, uh, you may. Uh, you know, the Air Force is, is uh, only someone interested in cyberspace. You have to keep in mind that the Air Force's main thing is uh, strategic air power. Now, was that just so that was just a marketing gimmick then? I think it comes from the people in the Air Force who are tasked with cyber uh, cyber defense. And the, the main Air Force is probably saying, you guys have fun, but uh, you're not going to get a piece of the F-22 budget. And by the way, competition within bureaucracies, I mean, it's good too. The Navy has three communities. You know, submarines d- deliver cruise missiles. Uh, Surface ships deliver cruise missiles, we should say, and then you have air power, of course. So we should say, look, you know, we want to be able to destroy a target. Whoever in the Navy or the Air Force can uh, most cheaply and effectively destroy a target gets the money, and you guys can, you know, figure out the best tools to do that. Um, but uh, with regard to your question about the Air Force uh, and cyber community and whether or not you have services saying ridiculous things, well, one of the things about competition is you have the other services or the other elements of the bureaucracy to check each other. The best information about why the Air Force or Navy's aviation programs are screwed up comes from the other services' aviation programs. If you want to know what's wrong with the Joint Strike Fighter, ask the guys in the F-22 program. If you want to know what's wrong with the F-22, ask the guy in the Navy. So uh, competition uh, can reveal information for policymakers. Now, some people suggest, I think Fred Thompson famously made it a part of his uh, pre- his uh, terrible presidential campaign, that we should have uh, our defense budget exist as a specific share of our GDP. Yeah, uh, there's this uh, 4% for freedom idea, which is how our friends at the Heritage Foundation put it, which is that we should just spend 4% of defen- uh, of our GDP on defense no matter what. And uh, it's unfortunately not just Heritage. It's uh, Gates has said that he's for that, and uh, Mike Mullen, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, have talked about that. I don't think that makes any sense at all. You know, you ought to base your defense budget on your enemies and uh, the threats that are out there. Uh, rather than just saying it's going to be a fixed part of uh, of the of GDP, of course not this year, but most years GDP grows. So uh, saying four percent of of the uh, of our economy ought to be devoted to defense is to say that we ought to uh, increase uh, the defense budget by the size of the economy every year, and I don't think that makes sense. The U.S. economy is, I forget, uh, six times or seven times bigger than it was in 1950. So do those people seriously think we should be spending six or seven times what we spent on defense in 1950 at the height of the Cold War just because? the economy is growing? Should our kids and grandkids spend a higher percentage of their wealth on defense just because they're richer than we are? It's really sort of an illogical idea. Ben Friedman is a research fellow in defense and homeland security studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at cato.org.